0: Good morning. Uh, The Bible reading this morning is from Acts 21, verses 1 to 36. You can follow it along on the screen, and also you can find it on the Church Bible, um, which we have out in the foyer, and you'll find that on page 1728. Okay. Okay, so beginning from verse 1. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Coz. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem when it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went abor- aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed it to Lamas, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, "Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us up to the home of Mason, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites and pay their expenses, so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. The next day Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, "'Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place.'" And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him.
1: Hey friends, how about we pray? Dear Lord and Father, we know you have lots to say and that you say it most clearly in your word So we ask that you speak clearly to us now. Help us to look at your Apostle Paul and what you ask of him and how he applied your commission. And so challenge us in the way we might learn in the next few minutes. And help me to draw out of of Acts, uh, out of this lesson before us, something helpful. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Could you imagine any situation where these words would come out of your mouth? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die. I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die. Can you imagine any situation at all where you would have that fit into your conversation? It's the kind of statement that heroes say in movies. You know, an Avenger runs into the battle saying, It's all right. I'm ready, not only to be bound, but also to die. Or perhaps it's a statement you would hear from someone as they set off to war. It's the kind of statement you would use when you knew the odds were against you. Certainly not a statement you would use in safe, comfortable, conservative Adelaide Hills without any offense intended. I mean, could you imagine leaving for work Uh, or uni, or school, or whatever it is that you might be doing this week, uh, and shouting out to your family or your housemate as you shut the front door, have a great day for me, I'm ready not only to be bound, but to die. See ya. That's what the Apostle Paul said to his friends in Acts 21. As he got ready to leave for work. Friends, I want to take you over the next few weeks to the last section of the Acts of the Apostles. And I realize that you have not recently moved through the early chapters uh, of Acts. And so this may feel like you're sort of jumping in midstream into the torrents and trying to work out how to, how to swim. Uh, so to help, can I direct your attention to the handout that I've given today? If you can open that up, you should see there uh, at the top an outline of what has happened so far in Acts it may help you as you read your Bible over the coming weeks. I'm going to be with you for about five weeks or so. Uh, and uh, hopefully it will give you some orientation to Acts so that you can see how that has worked out. Uh, what has happened so far in Acts is that the good news of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, which happened at the end of the Gospels, has been declared. It, it was declared first to the Jewish people starting in their capital, Jerusalem. And then it it went out further to the region of Judea, which is the Jewish region that surrounded Jerusalem. And then it spread further on to the Samaritans in in the region of Samaria. And then it got as far flung as Damascus and Asia Minor, as even Gentiles heard and accepted the news about Jesus. That's the development that you see as the gospel goes out in the Acts of the Apostles. And there's been some opposition along the way. By and large, Acts has given us a record of the massive growth of the first Christian church as witnesses testified to what they had seen and heard and been taught by the Lord Jesus. And then we get to Acts 21, where we return back to Jerusalem to the city where Jesus concluded his ministry with his view from the cross and to where the apostles started their ministry by the commission of their Lord. So if you've got it open, Acts 21, that'd be helpful. It'd be rude of me to, to, uh, to proceed before you had time to have it in front of you. So Acts 21, I want you to imagine yourself on a business trip, which starts with promise and then goes pear shaped that's what we have in this chapter we start with some travel warnings ignored then some good first impressions and then trouble strikes and then thankfully there's a very unexpected rescue so first travel warnings Quite a number of years ago, I was planning to uh, travel to Nigeria. Uh, By God's grace, the church in Nigeria had exploded, still exploding in number. They were desperately looking for people to train their newly appointed pastors in how to understand their Bibles. They're becoming Christian, and a week later, they're the pastor of the new-formed church. So they needed training. Weeks before I I was due to fly out, there was a riot in the compound right next to where I was going to teach. And so I did the dutiful thing. I checked the Department of Foreign Affairs as to whether it was safe to travel. It wasn't. I spoke to my church leadership and they told me not to go. I spoke to my family and they all said to skip it. So what did I do? I followed their advice and I cancelled the trip. That is the exact opposite to what Luke does, uh, to what Paul does in Luke's account here in Acts. In chapter 20, Paul has been meeting with the key leaders of Ephesus and reviewing their ministry. He spent a whole bunch of time with them before, reviewing the ministry. And in verse 22, look at Acts 20, uh, verse 22, Paul makes it clear that he thinks, what he thinks he should do next. And he says, Compelled by the Holy Spirit... I'm going to go back to Jerusalem not knowing what is going to happen to me there. Now, look at the prediction that follows in the very next verse. What I do know, says Paul, is that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. Now, that's not quite the pitch I would put on a travel brochure, would you? if you wanted to compel me to go off on some particular tour. Now, is any travel agents here? Now, can you imagine saying, I've got this fantastic idea, why don't you go to this particular place in the world? The only thing I can tell you about it is that prison and hardship will await you there. Sign up here. Yet Paul knows what his job is. He says, I consider my life worth nothing if only I finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me. What is that task? The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. This resolution, it's important to grasp because it drives all that we're going to read in the chapters that follow to the end of Acts. It drives everything that we will talk about in in the next few weeks as we look at how this develops for Paul. Paul is clear on what he is to do. He needs to testify to the gospel of God's grace. And yet he is unclear on what that will look like in practice, only that hardships lie ahead. Brothers and sisters, if you have been saved by the gospel of God's grace... It's likely that you are a descendant of one of the Gentiles that Paul reached on his mission journeys. We can be very thankful that Paul didn't back out, that Paul did his job. Because without that, we may not be here. In chapter 21, we see the journey begin. And it doesn't take long for the next travel warning to be issued. Look at verse 4, chapter 21, verse 4. Finding the disciples in Tyre and staying with them, the day came for them to depart. And through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And yet Paul, knowing his job, ignores and travels on. They reached Caesarea. Caesarea to stay with Philip the evangelist and while there a prophet named Agabus arrives look at verse 11 that's where the next travel warning comes Agabus takes Paul's belt he binds him and he announces the holy spirit says in this way the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and they will hand him over to the Gentiles and the traveling companions all pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem Seems like a lonely place to be under the compulsion of a commission, doesn't it? Now, I have no doubt that Paul's friends and the prophet and his traveling companions, they all had his best interests in mind, trying to dissuade him from traveling on to Jerusalem. I have no doubt that they were trying to do the right thing. In fact, did you notice it was the Holy Spirit who compelled him to go in the first place and yet at each travel warning, the the warning was given through the Spirit. Now we know that the Holy Spirit doesn't contradict himself, so why compel someone only to warn them that hardship will come? Well, the Trinity Network and this church has a rich tradition of sending missionaries or global partners out to the world to proclaim Christ. They've gone to places that may need the gospel, but that doesn't mean those places have wanted the gospel. I'm the pastor of 5pm Church at Trinity City, and uh, there are three global partners connected with that gathering, and they've all gone to places where there are security issues such that we can't name the place or even give their surnames. And in one case, can't even give their first names. For each, they will and they have faced hardships that have made their commission harder. Do you think for a moment, when God put it on their heart that they should go, that everyone around them all got exactly the same flash of inspiration... Such that they all stood up at the same time and said, sure, go, no problem. We can't think of anything better for you to do right now. Not on your life. Every single one of them, prior to going, would have been told by someone, by many, don't go. You have growth group leaders here, the Hills, as I've just heard. Do you think for a moment that when they bring up in conversation at work that they are a leader at their church, that their work colleagues would have patted them on the back and, 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 uh, and brought them drinks for doing such a brilliant job? Not in your life. They would say, why would you waste your time doing that? And let me make this even more personal. If you are a disciple of Jesus, think back to when you became a Christian and think about the first conversation that you had with any of your unbelieving friends when you told them that you'd given your life to Christ. I can bet my last dollar that that conversation was met by either stunned silence or maybe even ridicule. When God, by His Spirit, chooses to compel someone to give them a job, then He also prepares them for it. Three times Paul is told what to expect, that standing for Jesus would be hard, and Paul was prepared. In fact, he was so prepared that in verse 13, he says, Why are you weeping And breaking my heart. I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Well Paul goes on, verse 17, he arrives in Jerusalem, things don't seem so bad, good first impressions. Maybe this trip wasn't such a bad idea after all. He's warmly greeted. In fact, he gets to catch up with his old mate James from the Jerusalem Council, the leader of the the Christian and largely Jewish church in Jerusalem. They swap encouragements. Paul tells of what's happened in the ministry that he's been doing to the Gentiles. And hearing this, the believers in Jerusalem praise God. This is fantastic. And then James tells how thousands of Jews had become Christians. Oh, Wow. I'm glad we're on the right side here. This is a wonderful thing to be involved in. Now, there's a slight cultural issue that needs to be addressed. You can see that in verse 21. Paul uh, James explains the Jews, those who have become Christian, they've been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses and the law, telling them not to circumcise their children and to live uh, and to live according to our customs. Now, let me explain a little bit about what's going on. I don't want to get bogged down here, but it's important to understand what's going on um, because this will influence the next section. Jewish culture holds three things dear. If you're a Jew, your nationality as the people of God is very important. And so are your laws, those that were given back to Moses to your descendants years before. The law is quite important, including the Ten Commandments. And the temple is really important because that's the place where you go to meet with God, the physical place that you meet with God. Now, now, the new Christian understanding says that you find all three of those in Jesus. Our nationality in Christ. That's why we're called Christians. We find it in Jesus. The law, it's completely fulfilled by Jesus. Read Hebrews and it'll make that point over and over again for you. And the place that we now meet with God is in and through Jesus. That's why while we meet here, if we're not talking about Jesus, we're we're not really doing that as Christians. Those Jewish cultural markers were all pointers to Jesus. And now in Acts, they're fulfilled. Now, that doesn't mean for someone who has grown up as a Jew and has become a Christian that those things are now redundant. Let me see if I can illustrate that for you. At Trinity City, uh, we meet in the oldest church building in Adelaide. There are lots uh, of beautiful things about our building. The pews are old, incredibly uncomfortable. The stained glass is, is reverent. And there's a fairly ornate chancel that's, that's, that runs right across the front of the church building, changes color for the different season of the ecclesiastical calendar. If you know what that means, don't worry. Now imagine sometime this week we decided to gut the interior of the building, remove the pews, put in nice comfortable seats like you guys have. Take the chancel and remove it from the front. Make it firewood, because you know you could use that on the bonfire that the youth groups are going to be having soon, I'm sure. Replace it with with, with, with things that are trendy, with polished floorboards. Oh be great. Now it's likely at a guess that next Sunday many of our nine AM church family members would be fairly upset. For them, the pews, the architecture, the building, it has many levels of significance. Now, that doesn't mean they have placed their salvation hope in the building. It's just part of what they have grown to culturally accept over many years. And the Jews, back here in Acts... They've heard stories about Paul and they've wondered if he was undermining their cultural staples. So James moves to address that quickly. He suggests that Paul join four of the Jewish men in their purification rites to to pay their expenses to show his support, to abide by the law and present himself at the end of the purification days to the temple. And by doing that, those Jews who had become Christians would see that the claims about Paul weren't against Jewish customs, that they were false, that he was on their side. And that is what Paul does. Happy times. Now, I don't know if any of you have got nominal Christian family or friends. You know what I mean by nominal? As in, I like the idea of saying I'm Christian, but that doesn't actually affect a lot of what it is that I do. That's like saying I'm a cultural Christian. In my past, I've got lots of friends and family who have loved the idea that I've become Christian, haven't liked the idea so much that I've got serious about being Christian, particularly if it means that I can't make family lunch or that I miss that particular concert because church is on, or that I can't go out or do whatever it is that I'm doing because I want to be serving in a particular way. That's where nominal Christian uh, uh, thinking suddenly gets conflicted. And that's what we see Paul challenging, because those who are Jews or cultural Jews have now become Christians and it's changed their life. Like the idea of you being Jewish. Don't like you taking it seriously. Now, we need to spend some time, we could spend some time thinking about what it means to be all things to all people, which Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 9, but maybe we can leave that to another time and to a senior pastor when they arrive. Something like that. Third, as our travelogue continues, trouble strikes. Some Jews, not Christian, from the province of Asia turn up and they see Paul in the temple area and they immediately stir up the crowd. Verse 28. Men of Israel, help us. This is the man who teaches people everywhere against our people and our law and this place because he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. Now, notice that they accuse Paul of undermining those three cultural staples. Nationality, law, temple. And for good measure, they throw in some racism as well. They accuse him of bringing unclean people into the temple courts, which the writer Luke explains was a misunderstanding. The whole city's aroused. People come running. This isn't good. You know, seven days of effort to get the purification rites uh, in the temple, it's all thrown out the window. All of that good work is all based now, is all ruined because of false assumptions. And so they seize Paul. They drag him into the temple area and they they take him out of the temple area and throw him out the city gates. And there they try to kill him. This is where the friends, the prophet, The traveling partners, you know what they could all say, don't you? I told you so. Coming to Jerusalem was a bad idea. Why didn't you listen to us in the first place? You're stubborn, pig-headed, and now you're possibly going to lose your life all based on a misunderstanding. Friends, Standing up for Jesus is about being more concerned for His interests than your own. Standing up for Jesus is about being more concerned for His interests than your own. Let that sink in for a moment because often we know that, it just doesn't shape the way we do what we do. What Paul has put on display here is a desire to serve Jesus, even if there is a cost to himself. His commission was to go to Jerusalem and beyond, and at no point he was promised an easy ride. Earlier this year, along with some other more distinguished church leaders around Australia, I was asked to write a short answer to a question which was this. What are the major challenges facing Australian churches in 2018? Well, it is far above my station to be able to speak for Australian churches or from Christians in Australian churches. But here is what I wrote. Christians face the continued challenge to be in the world but not of it. The challenge for today is to proclaim Christ to a world where love, truth and obedience are all self centred and fluid. And often the world interprets our love as oppressive hate. Christians are then caught in a dilemma. We don't want to retreat into our nice, safe Christian comfort zones and just shrug our shoulders while non believers hurtle headline headlong into eternal destruction. But when we engage with the world, we are constantly pressured and in various ways, to various degrees, to do that which which may compromise our core Christian convictions. It's a lose, lose, lose situation. We either stay silent and then feel guilty because we know we really should be speaking up. Or we speak the truth and get slammed for being a bigot Or we tell people what they want to hear and then feel bad for letting Jesus down and confirming people in their rebellion against God. A lose, lose, lose situation. Can you relate to that? Friends, standing for Jesus is hard work. It looks like it's been hard for Israel Folau, for those of you who follow rugby union. And it's been hard work for Paul. And it should not surprise us that it will be hard work at times for us as well. But that doesn't mean we should run away. And I say that because look what comes next. A rescue. An unexpected rescue. Verse 31, while the mob was trying to kill Paul, news reached the commander of the Roman troops. So he gathered some of his officers and uh, soldiers and ran down to the scene to stop the beating. He arrests Paul, ordering him to be bound, and then asked what crime he committed. Verse 34, some in the crowd shouted one thing, some another. And since the commander could not get the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks, presumably for Paul's own safety and to keep the peace. That was his job. So from an unlikely place, the Roman authorities, Paul the Christian, is rescued. Allow me to make two closing remarks and hopefully by way of applying this for us. First, hardships in the Christian walk will happen. It should not stop us declaring Jesus. Friends, do you know know that? Hardships in the Christian walk will happen. Don't let it stop you declaring Jesus. Do you notice that all of the travel warnings came true? What the Holy Spirit had said, prison and hardship will be faced. They came to be. What the, what the prophet Agabus said through the Holy Spirit was that Paul would be bound and handed over to the Gentiles, and that came to be. And what Paul said he was ready for, to be bound and to be killed, well, it looks, it looks like that's exactly what he's ready to do. And what this sets up is the first of what will be five defense speeches, which you'll also see on your outline. You'll see at the bottom a whole series of speeches that are about to happen in the next few chapters. And what Paul gets with all of this hardship is the opportunity to proclaim the gospel of the resurrected Jesus. Opportunity that would not be there if he hadn't gone through that hardship, if he hadn't been arrested, if he hadn't been taken before the Gentile ruling authorities. It is those defense speeches that we'll look at over the next coming weeks as we move to the end of Acts. Friends, we cannot know what God has in store for us. Who here has any idea what tomorrow may bring? Yet even if that is some kind of hardship, then what we are called to do is to leave that fate to God. And in whatever circumstance we find ourselves, to recognize that it will be an opportunity to declare that you have confidence in Jesus. And if you follow in the footsteps of Paul, that opportunity will show itself in what you say and what you do. And like him, you will say, I do what I do for the name of Jesus. And then back those words up as you walk in the face of hardship and stand firm for Christ. Second, God is in control. God is in control. I find it wonderful that that despite the apprehension of all of those around him, that Paul stuck to his commission to stand firm to Jesus. And more, I think it is wonderful that God, in his sovereign power, raises up an unlikely champion to protect Paul and to make sure that what he wanted happened would happen a Roman commander of all people was sent packing, was sent running. And it gives me confidence to think that as we live to what God asks of us, that He also has the resources to raise up who He wants, when He wants, to look after us. And most beautifully, most amazingly, even if it means that we lost our lives for Him, then He has that covered as well. Because He has raised up the most unlikely of champions, His Son Jesus, to walk us right into heaven. Don't let anyone tell you that putting your trust in Jesus is a bad idea. And to prepare yourself, here's a question to ask yourself. Am I ready not only to be bound but also to die for the name of the Lord Jesus? Friends, may I ask you, are you ready? And if the answer to that is yes, then what about your life shows that you are? I trust there's much. Let's pray. Lord and Father, prepare us to be set apart and to live our lives for the Lord Jesus. And Father, we ask that you would look after the things that you can look after that will protect us, so that even if we suffer or we experience hardships in that commission, that you will still care for us no matter what.
0: And we ask this in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.